Welcome to Rec Talks, a podcast dedicated to the world of rec tech, fintech, and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning rec tech provider, Know Your Customer. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Carl Kammerer as my guest. A self-professed KYC historian, Carl has more than 20 years of corporate and investment banking experience in the KYC and AML domain. He is Senior Product Manager at Nice Actimize, where his focus is on building the industry's first standard measure of risk. His favorite quote from George Bernard Shaw summarizes his innovative approach. You see things and say why, but I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? We come back to that in a second, Carl. But first, Carl, thank you for accepting our invite. Pleasure being here, Klaus. Before I get to my main questions, I have to ask you about the quote. George Bernard Shaw is, of course, or was, of course, an Irish playwright. And I'm recording this podcast today from our office in Ireland, specifically in Dorky, a village in South Dublin. And even closer, George Bernard Shaw's former cottage is only five minutes on foot here up the hill from where I'm sitting right now. That's a good connection. To me, that quote expresses a core entrepreneurial mindset. Would you agree? That's why I use it. Being in the financial services business, where the conservative nature of the, the mindset of, you know, we don't want to break anything. We don't want to take too many risks. And this is more from a compliance risk perspective. And, you know, hopefully getting the mindset as well, why not? As we briefly saw in your bio, you have a very interesting journey. You landed on RecTech after working in banking at Commerzbank for 20 years. With this type of experience, you've seen both sides of the RecTech divide. What key insights from your time at banks have you brought with you when transitioning to the RecTech side? How does this dual perspective inform your work now? People that know how to build software don't necessarily know what to build. And people on the banking side uh, know what to build, but have no idea on how to build it. I would probably say the last five to seven years of my banking experience was filling that gap, trying to translate business requirements into technical requirements in a clear, concise way. It's not an easy thing. It is a very valuable thing to be able to describe a business process, the impact that it has within the context of banking so that you can build something that is useful not just to one customer, but to multiple customers, right? That is truly the problem to solve from a reg tech perspective. That's something that I always felt, you know, from a compliance function, translating policies and procedures into client experience, a workflow that's a positive one, is also something that, you know, the, the KYC, the client lifecycle risk management, the, the customer engagement, your people in the front office side that understood it as a, an opportunity to talk to the client, not as an opportunity to that you have to satisfy some requirements. So, you know, if you call up a client and say, oh, yeah, my compliance team makes me require this information. So can you just give me what you have and all hopefully it's what we need? You know, that, that's very lay ways approaching this. So there's a much more intelligent way of doing things and you can use software to, to help drive your business and your revenue while you're know, preventing the bad actors from accessing your financial system. Agree. I'm not quite sure I agree with the bankers would know what to build. <laughs> because I always think of that quote, 
from Henry Ford that is, uh, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. But on the other hand, we're here not to completely disrupt, but to help the financial institutions from the reg tech side. One thing I think that goes beyond that is the, the next question, actually. Because looking more broadly, what do you believe are some of the common mistakes made by tech companies when building products for banks? What are the typical shortcomings in companies just like ours? What should we avoid? You know, as a startup, you have to get a paying client. Depending on the size of that client, are you building a product just for that specific client? And I think, you know, there's a balance of, I want to build something that someone's going to buy, but you must make sure that it's solving an industry problem. Otherwise, you're going to be caught in that trap of, hey, we built something and other people can configure it and can customize it. And in terms of building a business process management, there are a dime a dozen companies that do that, but you want to have an intelligent rules. Where software comes and reg tech comes in is it has intelligence, so you don't necessarily have to have intelligence about everything. In a more crude ways, it's smart, so you don't have to be. A lot of companies in finding that first first client, that paying client, they build something specific for that client. It's not easily scalable to to other clients. Then that becomes, you get into the vicious cycle that's well known everywhere. It's, you start selling something that you don't even have. I'm not saying anything that's new, but that the idea is if you're addressing a, a pain point for a bank, do the research to make sure it's a pain point for other paying customers in, in the industry. So you're not not building something once, and then every time you have a new customer, you're building that product over. It's just, it's not scalable. I think every tech company makes that mistake to a degree, even just by necessity of having to react to a large customer coming in, asking for specific additions. As an early startup, you're usually not in a position to say no. We certainly had that in the early days, and uh, we've paid for it. One additional mistake I think we tech companies usually make is uh, that we think it's all about the product. In the relationship with a big bank, the product is only one aspect, your brand, the trust associated with that, or for example, the level of staff you put in front of bank decision makers, those are often much more important than we tend to think. Studying the art of product management, which has taken some years to, to refine, I think you do have to also clearly identify the market that you're going after in both the terms of users and user experience, as well as the buyers. Uh, they, they, are, they, are, they are two different ones. There's a little bit of a fallacy that people don't appreciate is, you know, you talk about tier one banks in a product world, or are you hunting for whales? Are you hunting for dolphins? Are you hunting for finnish or minnows? People have to recognize Everybody wants to go after a tier one bank because their their wish is if I just get one tier one bank to buy my product, then I will be I'll be in a good position. Sometimes that that's the best strategy, but sometimes you have to realize that there's probably five thousand other software reg tech companies knocking on the door of tier one bank and they, they just suffer from fatigue. It must be exhausting to have all these incoming streams coming at them and having to deal with it on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yeah. On, on a slightly different topic, but still as a product expert, what is your advice for financial institutions and compliance team looking to strike the right balance when it comes to friction or to put it another way, how can compliance team build processes 
but effectively keep the bad guys out without becoming a blocker for genuine customers? This is a, it's a very well-phrased question because I feel with the digital channels, two things are happening. The world is getting smaller. Our conversation is the same as me having a conversation with my next door neighbor at the local coffee shop. So the world's getting smaller, especially now with uh, the changes in payment systems, uh, things are happening faster. It's also changing. It's becoming more persistent, meaning persistent of the availability to send money in real time 24-7. Most people don't realize banking is really still a batch uh, processing end of day. Even though you're buying something at 6 p.m. here in, in the U.S., um, that transaction's really not occurring until the next day when, when the bank's operating systems happen up. So I put this in layman terms of there are times when you give grease to a process and there's time that you need glue. I use that terminology because friction is kind of a negative connotation. I always like to phrase things in a way that is, is kind of neutral. So glue gives the, the idea of things are progressing, but they're holding things together. Whereas friction is you're, you're stopping things. So I think from a compliance perspective is, you know, they have an idea of the risk appetite, although risk management and compliance world is completely qualitative. You know, the idea of low, medium and high uh, risk levels is just, it's, it's foreign to front office people that operate on numbers and prices. Knowing where to apply the glue is still an art, not necessarily a science. It's a change a little bit of the mindset of compliance is largely view. You know, I want that reputation of being a business prevention officer. Be part of the process and saying, this is a fantastic business opportunity. Let's put some grease here. And when this typology appears, let's put the grease there. But as soon as some illicit activity or some things that look problematic from a compliance perspective, let's layer in some steps that are has a little bit more glue. And I also use that concept because grease and glue at the same place doesn't really work. Compliance people don't have the problem of revenue generation. So I'm sympathetic to both the front office and the, the compliance people. And I think being clear about where there are opportunities to put grease and glue makes that narrative a little bit easier. Saying like, you're fine, just go, don't worry about this but here's where we really want you to pay attention to where we need a little bit more glue from you just to make things a little bit slower here. Listening to that, I have this vision of, oh, let's change uh, the process here a bit and put a little bit glue in here and a bit of grease in there. That actually sounds very difficult to manage on a manual process where you have distributed manuals and training to uh, 900 compliance staff. But I think that's that's really the point of, of RecTech of making these processes, including changes to these processes, more scalable and more doable. Staying on the topic of uh, product for another minute, there is no doubt that artificial intelligence is finally gaining huge traction, including in the fintech and regtech space. Are there any specific developments or applications that you find particularly promising in the industry right now? Working within a bank and doing something over and over again for so many years. I like to focus on the user in driving a business process so that it promotes favorable user behavior or outcomes. I think going into the, the machine learning, all those policies and procedures, you know, what used to take a year for multiple analyst consultants to consume 
of let's compare policies and procedures in Germany and France and Spain and the UK, HSBC, Standard Chartered, JP Morgan, City. They need teams of people just to read through that information, just to digest it. Well, now if you get a private cloud and put all that AI in one place, you can just ask a question like, what documents are needed to onboard this client with this product from this jurisdiction? What do I need? You know, rather than building a portal that has hard-coded rules to expose to an end user, just have the end user access that private chat GPT. And I think this is what Bloomberg and some of these financial institutions doing. Not make it a business process, but make it an interactive engagement with a potential client or existing client. I'm waiting to see who's going to be first into the world of chat KYC. I know it's coming, and I know someone's going to say we have it, but I know they won't have it. It is very exciting uh, in any case, dumping it all in the AI and then asking, is this a good customer? That's a bit too far for me, but we can go lower and uh, give the process or get, get access for automated processing to a whole new class of data, unstructured text. And we have a lot of that in anti-money laundering compliance, company articles of association, annual reports, all sorts of documents that are not that well structured. As you said, pointed out, even the regulations themselves, all of these are suddenly at least machine readable. We product people will have a lot of fun with a lot of new ideas in the coming months and years, how to use that power to have machine readable, unstructured text now. Let's move for a second to the topic of regulations, in particular around corporate transparency and beneficial ownership disclosure. What are your thoughts on the currently proposed CTA, the Corporate Transparency Act in the US? Uh, how do you see it potentially fostering transparency? Going back to the quote, I will applaud FinCEN for implementing something different. One of the things that banks and corporate registries both offer as a product, though it's not sold as a product, is privacy and secrecy. In a very cynical way, that's what they offer. The state of Delaware is one of the most profitable KYC vendors. They're not a KYC vendor, but they are. They're one of the most profitable, long-standing, 28% annual growth rate the last eight years. That is incredible. I, I didn't know that. It's phenomenal. Their budgets, they show, going back all the way to 2002, they show how much revenue they made from corporate registries, LLCs, and partnerships. You know, I was just curious. I started, I'm like, ah, how much money did they make? So, you know, the state of Delaware is this classic example of they made $1.5 billion just in incorporating businesses and reselling that information, which is fantastic. I think the beneficial ownership and the transparency, before a cause, that the title is KYC is broken, but KYC is not broke. It serves a lot of people very well. So I think FinCEN has a little bit of a balancing act. This is where people need to be a little bit more educated because from the KYC onboarding, identifying the ultimate beneficial owner, yes, it's very important. But for for payments, it's like, okay, well, where's this money? Where's this going through, going in and out of? Yeah, it's, it's very important not to diminish it. But from a loan perspective, you know, banks, their business is to generate loans. So they are the ones that actually create money and give it to people, right? Money is created through a loan. This is fractional reserve banking. So to get repaid, they have to know ultimately who's going to repay them. Even if FinCEN, the Corporate Transparency Act, isn't effective from a KYC AML perspective, banks are not going to walk away from not asking about 
who ultimately is behind this business. If they want to get repaid the loan that they gave out, they will still go, hey, I can't get access to these business registries. They're just going to ask the client themselves. You want a $100,000 loan and your name is ABC Shell Company? Well, who is behind the Shell Company? Because ultimately, ABC Shell Company is not really paying the loan. The persons, the people that are organized behind it and the, the people that are controlling the organization are the ones repaying that loan. I'll say this, I think overall the industry and the financial institutions are not well prepared for the change that the Corporate Transparency Act is putting in place. In other words, banks don't have to collect UBO information if they don't want to because FinCEN's collect them in here in the U.S. But there are 23 different exemptions, and I think I haven't seen anybody saying, here are all the exemptions. Most of them are easy. There are some exemptions that are very hard that there's an opportunity, machine learning maybe will help with that. But these businesses and these lawyers and these consultants that have largely gone, gotten a free ride because they haven't been held accountable, I think FinCEN's attempt to say is, let's hold the registered agents, the, the lawyers, the accountants that are creating these companies, we wanna hold them accountable. Even if it's just a small improvement in making people outside of banking accountable for contributing to tax evasion, money laundering, terrorist financing, I think it's a step in the right direction. Will it work from day one? I highly doubt it. But in February of 2024, it will be one of the most talked about things. I'm fairly certain everybody will be focused on. Do I have to report it? What's going to happen to me? And banks know what to do. The uh, access to that system is is also quite limited, as for now anyway. Which brings me to, to the next question. How do you think the proposed system in the U.S. compares to the UBO registries that we have here in Europe? It was mandated that these UBO registries are open and accessible even by the public. But considering now the recent loss of access to the public that took place in Europe due to um, a lawsuit related to GDPR, do you think there is an actual risk of the old continent here sliding backwards on transparency? Yes and no. I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed odd that GDPR came into play. Again, being somewhat of a historian, when I started this, the policy within the Commerce Bank wrote that you needed to onboard legal persons. I'm like, I don't, what's a legal person? Corporations are legal persons. And the curious mind is like, well, what do you mean they're legal persons? There's a whole concept of corporations or separate legal entities from the individuals that they represent. And then there's a little bit of a side argument that no, they're not. They're just representation. It's the, the people that are behind or controlling them they're one and the same. I don't know how somebody that is a UBO behind a corporation, I don't know how that ruling came to be. It doesn't make much sense, but they did. And it goes back to the idea of the, if you look at the background of the person that filed the lawsuit, it wasn't the best of circumstances that says the EU is really focused on minimizing money laundering and, and fraud and all this stuff. So no one's asked me to for a solution, but for UBO registries, allowing people to search, I, I think the solution I would hopefully people go is let's keep it symmetrical. So anybody that searches, you have to be verified. You have to create an account. You have to create an audit trail so you know who's searching for what. And then if you want to make UBOs public, then you make public who's searching for what. You make it 
transparent because this is one thing I, I also don't understand. It's just as important to know who's searching for what as it is who's behind a corporation. But I think that's, again, financial investigators not wanting to tip people's hands that they're doing some research, but you got to have some symmetry somewhere. It's very interesting. Like, that does show me how the approaches between European society, where I'm sitting right now, and US society, where you're sitting, express themselves in what tools we make available to fight the same crimes here and uh, how far are we willing to, to go. It doesn't seem to be a real willingness in the US society to have that data in public. And what you're saying is you would assume, and I, I didn't really think about that, you would assume that there should be a symmetry and if you have your data out in public, you should know who's accessing it. That is definitely different here from the mindset in Europe, where transparency somehow over the past decades came up as a goal on its own. There's certainly no talking about symmetry of access that you would be informed if somebody looks at these records. They are just supposed to be completely public, and that will help preventing crime because there's more people looking at it. There, there are good arguments on both sides, I'm sure, but it just shows you how different the approaches are in, this, in society rather than just law. That idea just comes from LinkedIn. So li LinkedIn... If somebody looks at your profile, you get a notification. And so I was just like, this is fantastic. If you want to have open access, you let people know. You need to register and create an account. You need to be verified who you are. And then people can search to see who searched against their name. Secrecy and privacy, while it's very helpful, it probably causes more problems than it solves. Transparency and being open seem to be a little bit more powerful tool than keeping secrets. That leads me to my last question that I ask all my guests. If tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, what would be the first thing you would do? And of course, why? I think in terms of business registries, I would actually require and ask banks to tie into business registries because they are the authoritative sources. Bank records are kind of second party data. And then when it comes to business records, it's it's in between because I actually did reach out to a lawyer that represented the state of Delaware a long, long time ago. And I said, why can you charge? Why can't my client resell this document? And they said, well, it's their document, but it's our seal. So basically they said, well, the seal makes this business legitimate. This is the concept of these business registries are the authoritative source. If you look at it from a, a conservative banker's perspective, They're about managing liability and risk. So the first thing is they always assume the worst case scenario. So if I was sitting in a banking position, if I have APIs into a business registries, which are now available, I would link my internal record to say, where available, link this to the authoritative source, because whenever that authoritative source has changed, now you get a notification saying, in real time, this company, Dunkin' Donuts LLC, is no longer Dunkin' Donuts LLC. The real name, based on this business registry, is this. Therefore, you would have a single authoritative source that's a unique record that the whole KYC process just becomes a non-issue. It's not something that can be done globally, but it's done jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And oddly enough, in India, they are doing this. You know, they have the Adhar system, but they also created a central KYC system from their securities business. Every single bank now, if they want to onboard or open an account for somebody, they check the system to say, is this a legitimate business? Does this company exist? Does this person exist? Is this a verified account? FinCEN is doing this a little bit as well. They're looking for 
having people connect to government is in the business of legal entities. That's that's what they do. This person's a citizen. This person's not a citizen. This person's a resident. This person's not a resident. They do it for tax purposes, but banks, because they have financial assets, that's how they're involved. You know, here in the U.S., the Social Security Administration is now has an API that, with the consent of a client, says you can go validate my Social Security number against the actual Social Security Administration. The ability to say they are who they say they are shouldn't be the job of a bank. It should be the job of a government because that's what their business is to protect their citizens, to protect their citizens, they need to know. And then those business registries would be more accountable for the businesses that they create to drive economic growth in their region. That would be a logical thing of, hey, from a regulatory perspective, your business registries are more accountable and responsible for the businesses that they create. Thanks so much, Carl. This has been amazing. It was really, really interesting. Thank you very much. Looking forward to uh, to seeing you in person someday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider, Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks.